Welcome to Waking from the American Dream. Oh, this is Kelly Carlin. everyone. Welcome back. I know it's a miracle. Two shows in less than two weeks. Okay. Well, it'll end up being three weeks once it's all up and, you know, goes through the whole mouse trap, hamster, ham, habit trail. Remember the habit trails? God, I remember. Did you, 
Did you guys have hamsters? Did you have a hamster, Logan? I did not have a hamster. You did not have a hamster. I had a hamster. His name was Hamlet. I don't know why I named him Hamlet. I was not into Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, it was a confused time, though. That was up when we lived on Tellum Drive. It, it was a tough time for the family. So, you know, I didn't quite know what I was doing. Uh, but I did have a habit trail. Big old long tubes, all places. And uh, then I got a second hamster. Don't remember what that one's name was. Then they had babies. And then the daddy ate the babies. Yeah. They do that. They do that. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't know they did that. So it was like this, you know, genocide, patricide going on, hamstricide going on in my house. It was a wake-up call for me. The world is a ruthless place is what it was telling me. Fathers eat their children. <laughs> I do remember, though, uh, the hamster got sick, one of them, and I had to take it to the vet. And um, the vet had one of those uh, things that you put over the mouth of, you know, a human for oxygen or whatever. Just put the hamster just under the whole thing. It was just like a cone of oxygen for the little hamster. It was kind of cool. Didn't live, though. I guess it was Hamlet's time, as as it is with all of us at times. I don't know how long a hamster's supposed to live, but I'm guessing Hamlet had a decent life in that habit trail, eating all of those green pellets that are really hard looking that don't look like food at all. I think I probably gave him some fresh food too. I mean, it was the 70s after all. We were trying to eat more fresh back then. A little bit. After a whole decade of processed food. Anyway, welcome. Was not expecting to talk about the hamster to begin with, but you know, that's how life is on a podcast. You never know what you're going to talk about. Uh, so that was, of course, uh, we played Desperado. Um, just wanted to put a little shout out for the second dead rock and roll star <laughs> of the month. Uh, it has slowed down, though. We, we haven't lost anybody in about five or six days. I was worried if we'd even make it through the weekend. Uh, Logan had mentioned that there was also um, a gentleman from Mott the Hoople. I believe the drummer who played with David Bowie. He yes. died a week later. He died a week later. And then some other... We're thinking possibly a drummer from Crosby, Stills, Nash. I believe so, yeah. Yeah, also died. Um, you know, being a rock star is not good for the uh, body, I'm thinking. If you're a rock star in the 60s and 70s, you're... Well, of course, there's some people who are defying that, as we know. But uh, and it's genetics, too. But And it got me thinking also about, you know, this is kind of what we're going to have to prepare ourselves for for the next 10 years. All of these musical heroes of ours who were really became the voice of sanity in our culture, um, they're going to start going away very rapidly. We're going to lose our greats. Are like the the Hall of Famers are going to go away. This decade's the fiftieth anniversary of everything, and they're all going to die. Yes. <laughs> so look, looking forward to that. <laughs> So, America, if we haven't gotten to have a good conversation about death yet, now's the time. All of our heroes are dying. So let's start talking about it because we're all going to die, too. Welcome to being a living thing. Uh, yeah. So I'm hoping that it, it does. It kind of makes us all go, maybe we should be having these conversations with our families now. Or, you know, like end-of-term care or end-of-life conversation, hospice conversations. Maybe doctors will actually be able to tell patients 
you know what? Maybe we shouldn't be doing any extraordinary efforts for you because you'd like quality of life the last three months of your life. These doctors don't have these conversations sometimes. I've heard it a lot from a lot of family members and a lot of friends who, uh, you know, doctors want to pretend, oh, we'll just try one more thing, you know, but inside they're going, well, if it was me, I wouldn't do chemo. I would just live the last six months of my life with some quality. Um, so, you know, I always try to be uplifting on this podcast. <laughs> Two weeks in a row, we started with death. Well, at least officially we started with hamsters this week. So there's that. Anyway, Desperado, uh, one of just the greatest songs ever written all time. I mean, it's just, I know for me, a very personal um, I used to think about all the bad boys that I was in love with <laughs> and could sing that song to, including my first husband, Andrew Sutton. Bless his heart and rest his uh, rest in peace, rest in, rest his soul. Uh, he's no longer with us either. Boy, right back around to death. Oh, and speaking of death, uh, something that's just starting to irritate me a little bit on Facebook like everything else that irritates me on Facebook, people who post uh, announcements about someone dying, a dead celebrity dying, and uh, doesn't check the date on that and shares it with their friends um, and says something very heartfelt and lovely. Uh, but the problem is the person died three years ago. <laughs> so um, let's do the research, people. And uh, when I say research, I mean, let's take the 3.9 seconds it really takes to Google that shit. <laughs> or just look at the date at the top of the article. Yeah, that's it. That's all you need to do. Just click on the article. There's a little date there, usually. And, uh, you know, let's take care of each other that way. Just, you know, let's, we don't need to put posts up that aren't timely. We've got enough shit to read out there. And then, and what it makes me do too, when I read it, it's like, wait a minute, I thought that person was dead already. Wait, who, wait, is that the person that died? You know, because as we already discussed, everyone is fucking dying. So let's be accurate about who's dying now. Let's not get all crazy and post deaths that happened. Don't need to grieve Andy Rooney again. <laughs> no, <laughs> we don't. <laughs> Well, I'm sure someone does, but I, I, I can pass on that one. Yeah. Uh, I'm reading, I'm drinking, um, someone left uh, some diet A&W root beer in my refrigerator. Uh, really, I've decided probably the scariest thing one could drink. Although uh, on the side of the bottle, it says contains or has uh, aged vanilla, as if that's going to make it any less artificial knowing that I've got some real aged vanilla in that concoction of chemicals that I'm drinking here. Uh, I wanted to see what it tastes like. It tastes like Diet a &W. <laughs> I was hoping for more with that aged vanilla and that fake wood uh, background on the a &W. Like it's a real barrel of root beer. It's not a plastic bottle. It's a real barrel of root beer. All right. Uh, so that's that. Uh, that's that. I've got a couple things to talk about. I actually took notes this week uh, since I'm going to be talking in your ear for a few minutes here um, since we don't have a guest this week and we don't have uh, uh, a roundtable. I'm going to be uh, 
planning a roundtable, I think, next week. I think we're going to try to do that with uh, some of the gang, some of the gang that's been here before. Chad mentioned yesterday that he wants to be a part of that. We'll get Aaron in, maybe Dylan and Rick, uh, because it will be Iowa next week. But we'll get to politics in a minute. Um, but first, I wanted to talk about this whole thing about the Oscars. And, uh, you know, uh, some people aren't going because they're mad. They're mad at the Academy for being a bunch of white old men, which it has been for a hundred years. <laughs> uh, and so, and okay, so this is my spiel. I say, I, I love how everyone is suddenly on the bandwagon about not enough diversity in Hollywood. Uh, being a female human my whole life, I've had to live for decades under the spell that all I could really be was a wife, nurse, or teacher. And maybe if I was a freak of nature, uh, anything else that was assumed normal for all the males of the species. And I suppose I should be happy that uh, women and people of color are finally having, you know, big public shit fits about this stuff. Uh, but it's really... It's been four decades since the civil rights movement and the women's movement. Four decades. It has taken us 40 years in this country and two terms of a black president to um, to really finally be having these conversations. I mean, the whole Black Lives Matter thing and the whole police brutality. I mean, this is shit that's been going on for over 100 years with black people in this country. It just shocks me how long it takes uh, for us to get anyone outside of the group to get upset about these things um, or to pay attention to them. People inside the groups are, are always upset about them. Well, even, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, I had to learn to be upset because you don't learn that to begin with. You think, oh, this is just the way the world is. And then you're like, wait a minute. This doesn't have to be how the world is. Um, but I don't think protesting the Oscars or not going to the Oscars is really going to do anything about it. First of all, I'm kind of fascinated by it all because Chris Rock is hosting this year. Uh, so I can't wait to see what he's going to do with this. This is going to be worth watching the Oscars just to see him deal with it because, uh, you know, he's an outspoken black man. Uh, but Spike Lee's not going. And rightly so, Spike. If, you, if someone's going to draw the line, it's going to be Spike Lee. I love him. Uh, but... You know, the thing about the Oscars is, so I looked up the procedure, how these people get nominated. And actors nominate actors, directors nominate directors, editors nominate editors. It's like once you're, if you're, if your thing is eligible to be voted on, the movie you're in, which is, it's pretty easy elig eligibility. Um, it's your in-group that nominates you. And they do, it's kind of a, it's a bit convoluted i mean it's like you know there's five things and there's a ranking and the highest it's it is convoluted i will give you that but as many actors have said and many of them i'm sure very progressive and liberal they all say well i looked at everything and i just voted for the people who i thought gave the best performance i'm voting on performance which i think is probably how it should be it should be on merit of what you're nominated for acting editing directing um and i don't think women well not women i don't think i don't think i don't know women and people of color are saying you should vote for women and people of color just because that's we need to recognize them more um i don't know 
but um, I started looking into this a little bit today. I did a little research on the internets about this. And uh, I mean, we all know that people who are in a group tend to stick with people in the group. And it's not a conscious bias. It's not anything we want to do. Uh, as social psychologists and anthropologists have been studying, evolutionary psychologists have been studying this stuff. It's called in-group bias. And I mean, like they do experiments where they have like 10 college students come in. You know, they're always experimenting on college students. I remember being at UCLA and taking psychology and we had to go in and volunteer for two or three of these experiments for grad students. And I would go in and I would figure out what they were really testing for and they would always have to eliminate me. They were always pissed off at me. I'd go, um, yeah, I know you're not really limit. I know you're not really testing us to see the difference between triangles and squares. It has to do with body language in the room or something like that. Just piss them off. But this is what they did. They uh, randomly took these college students and they randomly and they just like arbitrarily said, okay, um, here's, here's a style of painting and you're now going to be the abstractionist painting group. And then here's the other style and you're going to be the, um, realist styling style. And then they like had people, you know, and they do this way surreptitiously. So people don't really know what they're testing on. And they found out that people who had just met, who didn't even know anything about abstract painting, ranked the people inside their group as more likable and better people than the other people in the other group. <laughs> Just, you know, it's that quick. That quick we're establishing in-group bias. So imagine being, you know, a white guy or a black guy or a woman or a LG, you know, a lesbian or whatever it is. You're going to relate to your group more. So it's a species thing. It is. We're just, it's how we're wired. I'm not saying this is an excuse. I'm not saying this, anybody should be let off the hook, but this is what it's, this is underlying it. You know, people aren't out to be ass. No, some people are out to be just assholes. We know that. <clears throat> Mr. Donald Trump. Uh, but uh, most people, I think, just have this unconscious bias of like, well, you know, you look like me and you sound like me, so I like you a little better and I probably feel more comfortable being around you. So I'm going to hire you. And, uh, and that's, so we understand that. So really, so then my question was, okay, so we got all these groups, we got all these people, everyone's got their little in-group bias. And, and just imagine, I mean, if you can like base it on randomly being put into a group by a grad student based on a painting. So imagine how many in-groups you actually do belong to in your life. You know, there's your family, there's your color, there's your gender, there's your hobbies, there's your politics, there's the city, there's the football team. It goes on and on and on. There's a lot of in-groups and a lot of reasons to hate the other people. <laughs> but one thing I know is that like when I go on retreat and um, I'm like really on retreat, like I go to like a Buddhist retreat or any kind of a place like that where I'm going to be meditating a lot and completely unplugged from the real world and all of that. And after about 36 to 48 hours, after I've freaked out, hate everybody, want chocolate, um, thinking about getting in my car at 2 a.m. because I can't take it anymore because someone's snoring in the room next door. 
uh, have to feel my feelings because I'm not being distracted by TV or social media these days or whatever it is. And then this thing happens around 36, 48 hours where you um, fall in love with everything and everyone. It's like your heart cracks open. It's this amazing thing that happens. Um, I didn't have time to do research on it, but I'm wondering if someone is doing some sort of brain research about this. Like, what is that? What happens? What aspect of your psyche opens up where you do get to have this feeling of at oneness with everything and everyone. You get a little glimpse of what the Buddhists like to call nirvana, enlightenment. Uh, it's, it's a profound sense of love. You know, you get filled up with the baby Jesus. <laughs> That's what I like to call it, the baby Jesus love. Uh, and you really do like, there's no separation. There's no boundaries. There's no more in group. There's no more out group. I mean, you and a rock are one. So there's really no even species thing or matter thing or, you know, it's just total. It's so, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, is we just need to get everyone to go to a Buddhist retreat. <laughs> it won't be hard. Oh, it'll be it'll be easy to get everyone to agree, you know. And so here, but the other thing too is that uh, I read a lot of Ken Wilber. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Mr. Wilber. I know I've mentioned him on the podcast before. He's an integral philosopher. Um, some of the skeptics out there, uh, Pendulet one time told me that he thought Ken Wilber was also full of shit. Uh, Pendulet thinks everyone's full of shit, uh, and Pendulet's a a smart guy and a great guy, and he can think that. Um, but I think Ken's on to something. Ken is also a practicing Buddhist, and he does talk about transcendent states. I think that's where some of the atheist skeptics get a little nervous when we talk about the transcendent states. But Ken Wilbur is a, a true intellect. I've got like 10 books on my shelf over here of his. Uh, a real thinker. I mean, to the point where sometimes you need to like read a sentence 42 times over because you don't really understand it. Uh, but I highly recommend his book, The Theory of Everything, if you want to get a splash taste of it. It's really helped me understand and look at the world in a different way, especially when it comes to these tribal in-group, out-group things. Uh, because uh, what he talks about, and he talks a lot about it, is the evolutionary evolution of consciousness and the evolution of thinking you know, that like a three-year-old doesn't think like an eight-year-old. An eight-year-old doesn't think like a 16-year-old. A 16-year-old doesn't think like a 20-something. There's, there's an actual developmental process that goes on in, um, in thinking process that we all go through in a childhood into adulthood. But there's also something like this human developmental process that goes on through mankind. Um, you know, you, you show up, uh, a hundred thousand years ago, we're all in tribes, magical thinking time, you know, there's, there's no one, I mean, unless you believe the whole alien thing, whatever, but <laughs> I can't, I can't hold on to that. But, and then there's this gradual evolution of, you know, man goes from tribal and then suddenly now he's 
no longer in the magical thinking, but now there's agriculture and there's, you know, hierarchy and there's now there's an emperor and, you know, all the way up to the enlightenment, democracy, rights of man, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so but what he talks about is that when people have a transcendent experience, depending on where they're at, and we'll just use uh, some friends of Logan's that he's grew up with, the Mormon church people, uh, that's their filter. Their filter is, you know, revelation of God type stuff. And so if they were to have a transcendent experience, they may not see it as like this oneness thing. They may see it that, you know, Christ himself or some sort of, I don't know, did Joseph yeah, Smith Holy, come down? Holy the, Ghost. The Holy Ghost speaking directly to All him. right. It's Holy Ghost material then. And so they may see it as Holy Ghost material. I don't know if they would have the same exact... With the light of Christ. The they're light all, of Christ. Excuse me. They're all one and the same, really. And yet, and it, yet three separate things. <laughs> <laughs> and they all know exactly how separate they are. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm sure... They're more separate than traditional Christian trinity. Right. Oneness, yeah. They yeah. have their own brand of it. But it, but it is that rebranding of what's innate in you. Yes. That... that fundamental human experience we have that all religions repackage and give back to you and tell you that you need them to get there. Yes. And that their particular phrasing of it is the thing, the way to understand it, the filter. Yeah. And, you know, and if you really believe in one God, like that's really your frame, then if you were to have a big kind of numinous transcendent experience, it would make sense that you would filter it through that information. And it reaffirms everything you've been taught about yes. your in-group. Yes, yes. Uh, it, and it does. And and then some people take acid, though, and it completely undoes all of that. Yeah. It's so fascinating. <laughs> it's like, where does, like, so what's that switch? Why is it that way? You know, why is there, like, the reaff reaffirmation camp and then there's the complete exploding of the model camp, you know, where it's like, oh, well, this, all this is bullshit. And it's just this direct connection with whatever that is, that experience, that amazing thing that happens when your right brain can talk to your left brain or who knows what it is. Uh, so, yeah, so I don't know if we got everyone to a Buddhist retreat. A, I guess we'd have to call it a Mormon retreat for some people or a Christian retreat or a Jewish retreat or, I don't know. Yeah, so my, my question is, like, how do we get the species, the whole species, not just countries, not just genders, not just states, not just nations, not just, but the whole species to like say, oh, we're the in-group. I mean, is it going to take an alien landing, really? <laughs> I think it's our only hope at this point. It may be. <laughs> to feel like we're one organism as a planet. Yeah, I mean, that's the next step then, too, the whole Gaia thing. Like, how do we go to there where we're like, you know, me, the tree, you. The survival's for all of the above. Yes, yeah, yeah. The global, the real the world, what they call it, world-centric view. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's something I've always thought about, too, is interesting how uh, there's two different scary versions of the one world order thing. There's the right version of it and the left version of it, you know, and they're both kind of, I don't, I don't, I think I fear them both. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Anything with the word order in it scares me in general, I think. Uh but yeah, didn't 
Bush used to talk about the One World Order? I, I think he did. I think he mentioned it, it in a couple familiar. of Yeah, it's kind of, it's, um, and, you know, but then like from this like hippy dippy space, you could see like, oh man, the One World Order, totally we're all at one with each other and we like treat each other beautifully in this like beautiful way and um yeah i don't know i try i try to solve these things people you can see i was trying this morning to solve this so so all i can do is recommend that each of you out there listening if you haven't so, okay so first of all the whole idea of going on a retreat i know is terrifying for most people it was for me uh, when I went on my first one, first of all, I didn't think I could actually be quiet for a few days in a row, like a silent retreat like that. It thrilled me and terrified me at the same moment. Um, and this is back 20, 20 years ago. Uh, yeah, 20, 20 years ago. Hmm. And uh, because I thought if I was going to be quiet and just stuck with my thoughts for any amount of time, I'd uh, probably rip all my clothes off and go screaming out of the, <laughs> the hall at some point. Like that's what I only thought my only option was uh, for my mind was just insanity. I would go insane. And I get it. For people who aren't used to listening to your thought to their thoughts or try everything to shut them out, like, you know, every moment filled with something, TV, social media, food, talking, work, uh, radio, uh, CNN, uh, whatever it is, um, silence uh, is is threatening. Absolutely, uh, but I couldn't recommend it more. Really, uh, it's it's amazing who you'll find in there. And yes, at the beginning, you will find all of your crazy thoughts. They will be there, uh, but then you start to see that you are not your thoughts. Believe it or not. You are not your thoughts. So I'm going to put a little challenge out there to my listeners today. Uh, try it for 10 minutes a day for the next 10 days. Find me on social media, you know, at Kelly underscore Carlin on Twitter or Kelly Carlin official on Facebook. Let me know how you do. And uh, let's say some of you out there are like, oh, yeah, I've been doing that. I can do the silence thing. That doesn't scare me. I even do a little sitting meditation. But I would never go to like a five-day or seven-day silent retreat. I want to challenge you right now. Get on the internet. Find something close by. Hell, find something across the country. Maybe you have to go 3,000 miles away to get silent. Sign up for something. <clears throat> go on a silent retreat. Do it. You are going to be so happy because at like hour 36 or 48, you are going to fall in love with everything. It's an incredible experience. It really is. It changes your DNA. You know, this whole epigenetic thing. Okay, I don't have any proof on that, but it fucking feels like it changes your DNA because it's changed the wiring in my head. So if we can each do a little more of this, then each of us will be, I don't know, on the front lines of this whole in-group, out-group thing. So that, you know, we can all wake up a little bit together and and then maybe we could just all just watch the Oscars as friends, okay? <laughs> so let's get our priorities straight. All right. So next week, finally, is the Iowa caucus. Finally. Finally. How long have we been already talking about these people? How how many 
fucking Republican debates have we already gone through? Which, by the way, I watched the first one. Fascinating, hysterical, amazing. Uh, maybe watched a few minutes of the second one. Have not watched one since. Really, I, do I need to see more? No, I know what's going on. Uh, don't need to tweet it. Don't need to do it. Uh, but finally, uh, Iowa. So something will happen next week. Well, they'll, they'll be interesting. We'll see. Does Trump have legs? Can he really do this? Uh, does Bernie gonna Trump's little Miss Hillary or is uh, uh, Superwoman gonna, uh, you know, fight back? Uh, it'll be interesting. <clears throat> uh, I'm an observer at this point until it is time for me to vote. And yes, I do do that. I vote. And uh, you should too. It's all we've got, people. And yeah, I get it. Uh, there's no difference between the two. Listen to Bill Maher. There actually is a difference. Uh, Supreme Court being one of them. And uh, yes, it's all a club and we're not members of it. But um, some people want us to at least have a few more privileges than other people as citizens. <laughs> Trust me on that. The world was a very different place when Reagan was president versus when Clinton was president or Obama was president and Bush. The world was different, not in major ways, not in probably 90 percent of the ways, but in that 10 percent, there was a difference. And that 10 percent can mean a hell of a lot to some people, especially working families. So do your job. Get out there. Be a citizen. Vote. Even if you're voting for someone crazy, vote. Be a citizen. Damn you. That was my mother. I just, my, my mother just came out. No, that wasn't my mother. She would never tell you to do that. Uh, so, yeah, so we'll have a little, we'll try to get a round table together uh, end of next week. And uh, we'll all have opinions, I'm sure, about what happened in Iowa. And, you know, normally when I do the octagon, it's some sort of big, interesting, oh, maybe the topic will have to be democracy. Maybe we'll just do democracy and we'll be able to talk a little bit about Iowa and then all the other things about democracy. <clears throat> we'll make sure Dylan's there because he's really smart about that stuff. And Rick, too. All right. Uh, so that's all I'm going to talk about politics. Um, someone reviewed my podcast last week. Yes, a new person, a new listener reviewed my po podcast um, and um, was warning his r readers that, you know, she gets a little woo-woo sometimes. <sighs> you people really need to get over yourselves. <laughs> it's, it's, it's okay. It's okay to talk about the transcendent. It really is. Uh because it's part of the human experience. It's part of who we are. It's part of how we're wired. Don't know what it all means, but it's an important part. Think of it as like taking a vacation from all the insanity. That's what my Zen Buddhist teacher teaches me, Genpo Roshi. Think about those 10 minutes a day when you can empty out your mind that it's like unplugging from all the bullshit. We all need that. Uh, speaking of emptying out and unplugging, did I talk about tidying last week? I don't think I did. Okay, so I'm reading this book. I read the book. The book is called Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo. K-O-N-D-O. She's a lovely Japanese woman who wrote this book about tidying. 
Not organizing, not cleaning, tidying. She uses the word tidying up. So, you know, we all have too much stuff. I don't mean to quote that other guy who talks about it, but we do. And our stuff, we own our stuff, but not really. Our stuff owns us. It's so true. And so this woman has this amazing approach where, okay, and this is where it's going to sound a little woo-woo to some of you people out there, but she believes that everything that's in your house should, A, either have a purpose, a real purpose, like your stove or your toaster uh, or the brush that uh, cleans your toilet, Um, but all that other stuff that doesn't have a purpose, a survival purpose thing, um, should spark joy in your life. That if it's in your house and it's occupying space, it should spark joy. And it should have a place, like an actual place it belongs, not just shoved into the back of a closet somewhere. Because basically, if you have anything shoved into the back of a closet and you haven't looked at it in five years, it doesn't exist to you consciously. It's it, But it's there. It's so interesting how this stuff works. You don't see it, you don't think about it or whatever, but the fact that you know that that closet has just got a bunch of fucking stuff crammed in it, that's like a section of your psyche that's like clogged up right there. It's just, it's, it's cluttered and your mind is cluttered. The, um, one of the symbols of the self and the psyche in dreams is your house in your dreams, that your house represents kind of your mind. And so if you take that further out into the waking dream life, symbolism, metaphor, waking dream, uh, your house is a metaphor for your psyche. So whatever state your house is in is a reflection on the state of your mind. So you hoarders out there, guess what? (laughs) You are literally full of shit. How do you like that? Uh, so this woman has you, you have to read the whole book. You can't just be like, okay, let me just get through the, get, get to the highlights and get to the hints. You got to read the book. You got to like, let yourself enter into her philosophy. And she has a relationship with everything. Like when she walks into her house and it's very Shinto Japanese, she like, she's, you know, thinks about the gratitude she has. Thank you, house, for putting a roof over my head and and having all this beauty and all this stuff. I mean, she really has a a very mindful, conscious relationship with everything. And therefore, everything has a place. So she has you, first thing you do is you discard. That's your first line of business. And uh, the first thing you do is discard your clothing. And that's what I did. Uh, The five days before the new year, I... And this is what she has you do. She has you like take all your clothes out of everywhere. You don't like go into your closet and go, oh, now I'm going to do the closet. You pull shit off of shelves, drawers, everything. And you do like tops, bottoms, dresses, coats. Like she has all these categories, subcategories. You do each category at a time. Underwear, socks, the whole thing. Um, and But she makes you pull out each category all at once and put it on the bed. So you really see what a big fucking pile of shirts you have. Like you didn't know you had that many shirts, but you do. You have that many. And you're one body. And you have, you know, 60 shirts. It's like, oh, that's a lot of shirts. 
And then she has you pick up each item and ask yourself, does this spark joy? And at first you're like, I don't know what the fuck that means. Does this spark joy? What does that fucking mean? Uh, but you get it after like you've, you've kind of, because you'll pick up something that really, really does spark joy in you and you'll feel it. You know, that somatic experience of something shifting in you, you'll feel that sense of like, okay, that's joy. Okay. That other thing I felt with that, with that other shirt, that wasn't joy. That was guilt because I spent a hundred dollars on it and I didn't wear it. <laughs> and she covers that too. She's like, maybe the joy it sparked was in the store when you bought it. And it's okay if it doesn't spark joy anymore, but it's not helping you by keeping it because every time you eye it in your closet, you get a sinking feeling inside your body, which is not joy. See, we get to, we get to create joy in our life. We get to do this. We're conscious human beings with agency and autonomy. And there's a lot of things we don't get to control in our lives, but our environment inside our house, we actually do get to control imagine that. That's something we're in charge of. But we kind of leave it to like haphazard, like, well, that fits there. And this is this. And yeah, I'm just going to keep that because I've always had those sweats. And my mom gave me that sweater a million years ago. So I went through every single item of clothing I owned and asked it if it sparked joy or not. And if it didn't, I put it in the pile. I took it to a great place where I donate clothing. It's going to a good cause. Got a nice little ride off. You know, it's win-win, win-win. And now, right now, while you're, well, not right now if you're in a car, but if you're close to a computer and you can Google magic of tidying up folding video on Google, I want you to go to the YouTube and watch Marie Kondo and see what an underwear drawer looks like once you have done this people because that is what my underwear drawer now looks like i wake up in the morning and my clothing is all arranged in such a way that when i open a drawer i see every single thing i own things are not stacked on each other they're not hiding there's not like the fucked up folded thing way at the bottom that you can't you know you forget oh that black shirt it's been under there for eight months i've never seen it Every single thing I wear, I love, it has a purpose. All my sweaters, I'm a sweater whore. I'm a sweater whore. Went through my sweaters and I'm probably gonna have to go through my sweaters again because I think I kept a couple of things that I thought maybe sparked joy, but now that I'm realizing and they've been up there for three weeks, I'm like, I don't really wear that. Why is that? What's Why, why did I keep that? I might have another conversation with myself. And then after I was done with my clothing in the bedroom, and I did my bedside, my, my bedside drawer, you know, the bedside drawer with all the shit in it, you know, it's kind of like a junk drawer. It is now I open it up and it's got little boxes and things belong in the right places. And here's the thing the whole point of all of this is that once you do your entire house, and it can take like up to six months to do your entire house. I'm I've gone on to the office, I'm done with the office. Now I got to go on to my kitchen and my books will be last because my books are the closest thing to my soul. And she says the more personal items, like personal family pictures too, are way at the end. Because she wants you to get some practice on like, you know, checking out the spark joy thing. But I have to tell you, it's like uh, there's, there's room inside of me because of this. I wake up in the morning and uh, I don't have to think about I mean, you know, when you see the pile of clutter in your house, you're like, oh, I gotta fucking do that. Because you know the pile of clutter is not going to be there forever. So at some point, you're going to have to clean it. 
But the whole point of this is that once you've gone through everything in your house, everything, and everything has its proper place and is properly stowed and stored and it sparks joy and it's there for a reason, you will never have any clutter in your house again because if you take something out or if you wear something or have a purse or a coat or whatever it is, when you're done with it, because it sparks joy and you have a relationship with it now, you will put it back where it belongs in that moment. It's like this thing that just naturally happens. I have never been one who folds their clothes. Like the the chair in my bedroom always looks like this thing. And my husband's always after a week, he's like, uh, are these clean? <laughs> he always is. Uh, are, are these clean? Uh, yeah, I just need to put them away. Uh, at night, I will take my pants off. And if they are clean, I will put them back on the hanger. My sweater, if it is clean, I will fold it back up the special way she teaches us to fold and put it back up on the shelf before I go to bed. That, folks, is a baby Jesus miracle. I mean, if you need really proof that there's a baby Jesus or there was, that's it right there. The fact that my mother would just be like in awe right now of me. And of course, if you could see the room around Logan and I where we're doing the podcast, uh... All of my dad's shit is still out. I did mention that last week. I pulled out the entire archives, uh, looking through all of it for a bunch of stuff. It's still all around me. I need to to deal with this. Uh, So this is not the tidiest room in the house. And it is driving me crazy. But my sock drawer? Yeah. Fucking rock and roll, man. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, highly recommend this book. Highly recommend it. Like the whole thing that it says life-changing in the title? She's not shitting you. She talks about how uh, what happens to people's lives when they really do this thoroughly. And like, you know, people who are like stuck in bad marriages are suddenly like, Jesus Christ, what the fuck am I doing in this marriage? (laughs) People start new careers. Um, It's interesting when I started life coaching. God, it would have been 10 years ago in 2006 is when I got uh, trained in life coaching. That's amazing. 10 years ago. How time flies. Uh, One of the things that uh, a lot of coaches do with their clients, the very first thing they have them do is uh, really declutter their lives. It seems to really make things change very quickly in your life if you're if you're willing to really go through your shit and uh, because it's unconscious, it's unconscious relationship with stuff. So if you have an, that big of an unconscious relationship with physical stuff in your life where you're just pack ratting stuff away, and I can't tell you, it's, it is anxiety provoking. I have to tell you, getting rid of some of this stuff where you think you have an emotional attachment to it because your mother gave it to you and she's dead now or whatever it is, um, it is scary. It's scary to let go of it. But on the other side of that, once you let go of it, you will see the benefit. There is room for you, not some emotional attachment that's really not alive. You're never going to forget your mother. And you're not going to forget her just because the sweater uh, is going away. I, I'm i proof of that because that was, you know, that's one of the thoughts in your head is my, I have a lot of sweaters for my mother. I, but I, you know, I got rid of some jewelry and some, it's, it's all good. It's all good. So 
I don't know what's going to happen when I'm done with this house, but I don't think I'll be divorcing Bob, but you never know. <laughs> All right. Uh, we got a few more minutes here. Good. Uh, so speaking of which, and this is all just, I didn't plan this, but it's all kind of just moving from one topic to another really beautifully today, uh, which is the two sides of me, the one that is attached to how things are and the part of me that's ready to let go of things. You know, you know, those parts, you have them, uh, I find myself kind of um, uniquely in the middle of that in a unique situation in my life right now, being with the book being done. And um, part of me being really ready to let go of all of that uh, family, uh, just over identification with family and the thinking of the psychology of my family and how it all worked and what we did and what it all means and how I got here and all that kind of stuff. Just the, just the constant kind of looking back aspect of myself that, you know, I get some comfort in that. And I've been doing it for 20 some odd years. How did I get here? How do I get out? How do I fix myself? I mean, even longer than that, probably 30 years. Um, you know, what's happening to me? Um, it's kind of where I've lived for a long time. And so it's very comfortable. It's very easy. And I find myself falling into it really easily. But there's a part of me that also wants to move on and write about new things and talk about new things and, you know, doing some of that here, obviously. Uh, but I'm really kind of terrified about that, too. Uh, like, like, I'm really trying to figure out what I want to write about next in a book and stuff. And part of me wants to write fiction. I started writing a story this morning. I don't know. It was just, it's, I just love that when you just kind of get taken over by something and suddenly there was this person in my head and this stuff was going on. And, um, you know, and some of it's autobiographical in some ways only because you've had that thought process before, but you can pour it into a fictional character. And, um, but then like a part of me is like, but I don't write fiction and no one's going to want to buy my fiction book. And, and, all of that, but I have some unfinished stories that I've, I have a screenplay that I have unfinished that while I was in Nacogdoches, Texas, hanging out with all these fiction novelist women, uh, thought to myself, I could turn this into a novel. Like I could take it out of the screenplay realm, which as we know is like, you know, you think getting your book published is difficult. <laughs> Try getting a screenplay made. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, but I could write this character's, I could finish her story in a novel. And, you know, I don't know. But it's like, but though I want to spend a year doing that, am I slowing down my moment? I mean, this is like all my career crazy strategy talk in my head. You know, am I going to wasting my time? Shouldn't I be used building momentum on this book? And don't people want me to t do more nonfiction? And uh... <sighs> So yeah, I, I don't know where I'm at with all of that. I'm just, I'm, I'm emptying out. That's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping if I empty it out, empty enough out. And part of that's the decluttering. Part of that is the dealing with my father's archive stuff. By the way, I sold the partner's desk. Uh, it left on Friday 
And it was bittersweet as I was walking it. It was going up the driveway into this truck. And a part of me was like, no, I can't let it go. And the part of me is like, it's okay, Kelly. It's just a desk. You'll still remember your father. (laughs) And it was like in his office, you know, my mother also used it, you know, it's like, but it's, but it's still, it's like a little piece of you goes away in the truck with the desk, you know, and it's like, okay, well, who am I without that little piece? So who am I without this? Who am I? So I'm just, I don't know, just dealing with that and got really depressed yesterday. I mean, I'm lucky I made it out of bed today. Really. It was one of those days I had to force myself out of bed um, and uh, like trying to be normal and human. And then once I did, you know, it's, it always works out. You, you start rolling along in the day and it gets better. But, you know, the letting go part part of it is, is that there is grief involved. You do, it's like a little grief over and over again, every time you let go of another little thing and say goodbye to it. And, and none of us do grief easily. Who wants to fucking feel that shit? I mean, I love melancholy. I'm a big fan of melancholy. I've lived there my whole life and it's very comfortable for me to be there, um, which then can lead to like depression and all that kind of stuff. But uh, but who, you know, who wants to go through the actual conscious sadness and sorrow of letting go? Um, yeah, not a lot of people raising their hand with that. Um, but if you let yourself go through it, as I have many times now in my adult life, dealing with grief around a bunch of stuff, if you just let yourself feel it, it moves through pretty quickly. And then on the other side, there really is more space. There really is something opens up, you know, but I just want to jump up to the, over to the open up. Oh, it's all open and wonderful and great. And I know exactly what I want to do now, but I don't know what I want to do. And I don't do, I don't know very well. You know, I talk about being in the mystery of it all. I love that. You know, oh, live the questions and all that. Yeah. Fuck you. Give me the answer. Yeah, I talk about, I, I talk a good talk. I'm learning to walk the walk. So, yeah, so I don't know. I'm still struggling with this, being done with this stuff. You know, and I'm not really done. I'm still promoting it and, you know, and then I see, and then the whole envy, oh, envy came up last night. I was on Twitter and I saw that um, Hunter S. Thompson's son, Juan, Juan Thompson has a memoir out and everything. Oh, it got a big splashy New York Times review. Really? <laughs> a little envy comes out in me. <laughs> I'm human. But I would love to have one actually on this program. That would be well worth researching and taking the time for. Uh, because he had a very interesting relationship with his dad. And, uh, you know. Not too different, but very different. But we have some parallels. Fascinating. Uh, so, yeah. So, um, so I guess the question is, uh, well, there's really no question. Uh, I'm going to leave you here today with uh, one of my favorite Mary Oliver poems. And uh, if you don't know Mary Oliver... Go look her up. She's great. Uh, What's the name of the book? I don't know which one it is. But this poem is in that book. It's called Wild Geese. And 
This uh, this poem's great. So if you haven't heard this, I'm very excited for you right now. You get to hear it. And if you have heard it, yay. All right. I'm going to leave you with this. Uh, oh, before I leave you, though, before I read this, I have to promote myself. All right. So first of all, I'm going to be in Boston March 1st for something called the Ad Club's Women's Leadership Forum. If you work for a big corporation and you live in the Boston area and you can get your corporation to pay for this, it's expensive. It's like 300 bucks for the day. But there's going to be a bunch of speakers and the theme is no filter. And I'm going to be talking about what that means to me, no filter, uh, and the filters I put on myself my whole life. We know that from my book, but that's really it's going to be. It's going to be a little 25-minute kind of TED Talky kind of thing, but it looks like a really cool women's uh, kind of a thing. It's, Ad Club is very famous in Boston. So I'm going to be doing that March 1st, and then uh, mid-March, I'm going to be in Charlottesville for the Virginia Book Festival. I'm the Saturday, 10 a.m., I think it's May 19th, uh, slot um, at the book festival. It's a great, great festival. Charlottesville is gorgeous. Um, you know, the University of Virginia is there. So if you're anywhere in the area and want to have me sign your book, come meet me, come see me. I think it's going to be a little talk, a little Q&A. Um, I will be in Charlottesville for the weekend for that. And then the most important thing is if you live in South Florida, and I've been wanting to see my show, my solo show, A Carlin Home Companion. I'm going to be at the Kravis Center, which is a very nice little performing arts center. I'm going to be not at the big, huge, like, you know, 3,000 seater, but something a little smaller, a little smaller theater there. Uh, I'm going to do four shows over three days, March 31st, April 1st, April 2nd. April 2nd, that Saturday, is a matinee and an evening show. Um... Please, please, if you're in South Florida or you're or you want to drive to South Florida, I do not know if I will ever be in Florida again with this show. I do not know if I'm ever going to be touring this show. Right now, it's all up in the air. But I've got four shows. So come down and see me or come up and see me. I don't know which direction you people are coming from. What do you think I know where you live? Anyway, come see me. Uh, and I'll sign your book after the show. We can take pictures, all of that. You'll enjoy the show. It's going to be fun. March 31st, April 2nd, Kravis Center. I want it to be Kravitz because it's more Jewish sounding, but it's not. It's Kravis Center in West Palm Beach, Florida. And Logan, do you have any shows? Albeit, I love a good story for ah. the Valentine show. Ah. And uh, That's in L.A. here. It's in L.A. here. And I have a live album called Summer of Love that you can get at loganheftel.com slash love. Uh, yeah, you need to fucking listen to this album, people. Um, Logan has stepped up into a whole new level of his artistic life. And uh, I watched it before my very eyes the night he filmed or recorded Did, a couple yeah, of... You were there. I was there. And it was like, who the fuck is that on stage? Where'd Logan go? It's amazing. Brilliant, beautiful. Check it out. You guys are all fans of Logan. Why know that? All right. So that's us promoting ourselves. Uh, and of course, we want to thank all the people at Smodcast who make this um, little bit of heaven possible. <laughs> all right. We're going to leave you with a little poetry today. Sorry if it's a little woo-woo for some of you people. No. I'm make I'm now I'm picking on you. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be doing that. I will stop. Okay. Wild geese. You do not have to be good. 
You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. from you.